So child has trauma. When that happens, your brain stores it like a strong, intense memory. Why? Not to punish you, to protect you, to save you. That's your brain's fun. Your brain's only function is to keep you alive, whoever you are, it's to keep you alive. And so when an experiences threat and trauma, it wants to know that if this thing happens again, what do I do? What's the problem with this is that it's a child, so they're unable to make sense out of it, but your brain's going to do the same thing. It's going to come up with this plan of what do I do, but you only have a child's resources. How crazy is that? So you got an adult-sized problem trying to be processed by a child's brain with very little resources and skills to reconcile those emotions. Y'all following me? This is good. Hey y'all, welcome back to Boundaries and Grace. My name is Taylor Chandler and I'm your host. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and I help people break negative love cycles. This episode is Men Without Fathers, part two, addressing the emotional and attachment impact. The first about eight minutes, we're going to lay some foundational things and some disclaimers about this stuff. And then we'll get into the topic. So I hope that you enjoy and get something out of it. I'll see you in the middle and I'll see you at the end. All right, so let's do it. Let's do it. We're going to address the emotional impact and attachment impact of men without fathers. I'm going to really try not to be in the comments, okay? If you want to be in the comments, you can. I'm going to try not to be in the comments. So where to start? I know where to start. First off, I want to say this. Y'all know I have to have disclaimers with these kinds of topics because it gets messy, okay? These are messy topics. Uh, So I have a couple of disclaimers. First off, um, so I'm addressing... What happens with these? What what happens with adult men growing up without fathers? This is in general, and the majority. When we say in general, we're talking about the majority of. Are there outliers? Of course, we're not talking about the outliers that deflects from the reality of the problem. Okay, so I want to I want to acknowledge that we're addressing uh, what happens without this masculine presence physically. Or emotionally, okay? When we're talking about absence, we get, we're um, acknowledging that someone can be physically present and emotionally absent. They can be physically absent and emotionally present, okay? The two are not mutually exclusive, okay? I used to, <laughs> I used to really dislike that term, mutually exclusive. It reminds me of statistics in high school. All right, anyway, so we're addressing um, what without the masculine presence what the general effect is. I want to say this, that not, I'm not saying that all fathers, that the presence of all fathers is good. I don't know everybody's individual situation. Hey, San Diego, hey. Um, I don't know everyone's situation. We, but, and I, I, so I say that not all fathers' presence is, fathers, plural, presence is good. Um, we don't want to romanticize the father. We'll talk about romanticizing the mother in a little bit. That's going to come up as well. We don't don't want to romanticize the father, which means basically portraying him as like the silver bullet or the special medicine that would have made everything better and solved all the problems. Okay, want to be careful not to do that. Um, still, still, I would argue that many times, present talking in general, many times presence is better than absence. Many times, yep. 
I'm standing on that. A man, because here's here's a reality. A man, just like a woman, does not have to be perfect to be a good or great influence, husband, father, or man in general. So that's where that statement's coming from. That um, I acknowledge that not every every father's presence would be good, okay? But also acknowledging that there are many times where some presence would be better than none. So I'm going to address two things. So those are those are those are the those are the disclaimers to start with. Okay, um, I'm going to address two things, two main things in this episode. One, how does the physical and or emotional absent father affect attachment in men? And two, how does that attachment issue affect heterosexual relationships with women? Ready? Okay, here we go. Let's talk a little bit about attachment first, because not everyone is familiar with attachment styles. I work with attachment every day. Am I the attachment goat? Yes, absolutely. It's even in my Instagram bio, attachment goat. This is what I do every single day, attachment, okay? Secure, getting people to secure attachment. So I want to give you a little overview of what attachment is briefly, and then we'll get into some specifics about some of the main types. Attachment exists on a spectrum. All qualities of all qualities and traits of humans exist on a spectrum. I just used this example maybe today or yesterday on the Daily Poll Live that Kindness, for example, is a human trait, okay? And it exists on a spectrum. In other words, you know that some people that you know are more kind than others because kindness is on a spectrum. It's not are you kind or not. They exist on a spectrum, okay? Some are more or less kind. You could use that for any trait that you, any human trait that you want. Attachment exists on a spectrum similar to that. We are not all one thing all of the time. We are not all one thing all of the time. That'll make more sense if you're not familiar with attachment as I talk about the two main ones um, as relate to to this issue in particular. For the sake of clarity, I'm just going to highlight those two main expressions that are most associated. Um, And here's the last thing I'll say about attachment in general. Learning about attachment and learning about the common effects of like, for example, this particular very specific issue, emotional impact, uh, emotional impact and attachment impact on adult men that grow up without fathers. It's very specific, right? Learning these things, these concepts, learning about attachment, learning the impact, learning how it affects relationships with women is learning. It's not literally processing through these. This is, this is not like doing the work. I, I really also don't like that phrase, but that's just a side note. Doesn't that's irrelevant. This is not doing the work. This is learning about it, and hopefully, it gives you some more foundation and understanding of. Um, so I'm looking at that. Hopefully, it gives you some more understanding and a foundation for to take this stuff and say, okay, I think this is me. I think this is me. Now, let me go sign up to do the work with somebody, whether it's me or somebody else. Okay. So I just want to be clear about that when like listening to these podcasts and cap and reading posts and captions is learning and yes your brain is processing but it's not getting to like that in-depth stuff that you need in order to like actually heal resolve these attachment wounds okay so I just want to be really clear about that I like to say like you know learning you could do like this is asynchronous communication but processing should be done like in real time with another human who is able to help you resolve actually resolve these things don't just stop at learning about it okay so those are my things so far. Woo, let me get some water before we get into these attachment styles. So two main attachment styles that we're going to address and specifically how it shows up in men. 
okay, and why it even happens. And then throughout that, I'm going to tell you how uh, some common ways that it affects or shows up in relationships with women. All right, so first, my anxious, preoccupied attachment style. Anxious, preoccupied type. That is an insecure attachment style. There are a couple. There's anxious. We're just going to talk about two. I'm not even going to give you the rundown of all of them. I'm just going to talk about anxious, preoccupied, and dismissive, avoidant. First, we're going to tackle anxious, preoccupied, AP, AP. So uh, this is also closely related to codependency. If you've been on my page lately, which we're talking a lot about codependency, codependency and anxious, preoccupied people have a lot in common. It's like one and the same, just like a, I always want to go down sidetracks. I know I like talking about this stuff, but it's just like addiction and enabling. Like there's always, they always go together. So anxious and, and anxious, preoccupied people and codependency go together. Remember that. So how does that show up? What are the kind of traits of this, of this male this man that might have an anxious, preoccupied uh, style, may be obsessed with maintaining the relationship, uh, taking on, may take on more of the burden of the functioning. That's a lot of ofs in there. Take on more, more of the burden of the functioning of the relationship than is actually healthy or fair. Okay. Uh, might have a fear of being a deadbeat or trash. Okay. Uh, low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is usually a triggering one for both men and women when we talk about this, but I'm going to say it in short. We only, and I'm including myself in this because I have been on the insecure side, and it was weird for me to also have to come to terms with the fact that I had low self-esteem. And I, it was, I mean, it goes, low self-esteem goes with insecure attachment styles, goes with attachment wounds, okay? So it's not a judgment, it's just a fact. We do not make poor decisions consistently when we have healthy self-esteem we do not attach and stay with people who treat us poorly when we have healthy self-esteem and so the faster you can accept that low self-esteem is essentially a requirement of having these attachment issues then the faster you can do something about it all right so low self-esteem coming from that place of i'm not worthy i'm not good enough um why does that happen why does that happen? Well, again, we're talking about a masculine presence, the father, emotionally or physically absent. So this son, who turns into an adult man, this son doesn't, didn't get to see his role played out. And if you listen to the uh, last episode, Men Without Fathers, that's part one, and the single mother effect, we talk about some of the statistics. Overwhelmingly, and a lot of us just know this as a fact, as just in, it's just like common knowledge, which is crazy, but um, know this as a fact that most single parent households are run by women. So it's only 4%, 4% of single parent households are run by men, and that's across races. All right, so this son doesn't get to see his role played out and understand how much confidence we get from representation, understand how much confidence we get from identifying with someone who's doing something that we would aspire to do. And this son doesn't get that. Okay, so it doesn't get to see his role played out. He, father, was removed from the picture. I'm not getting into the details about who filed what, okay, who kicked who out, who left first, whatever. Okay, dad was not there. The child's mind, because all that stuff in, in, in the, all that stuff is irrelevant. Because in the child's mind, 
the child, like any child, comes up with the most simplistic and egotistical explanation, which is expected and normal for a child. Children don't develop empathy until about like three. So especially when, and then of course it grows, that's ideal. It grows as they get older and have more contact with other children and things. They start school. That's we start to develop empathy because I'm in relation to others, my peers. I develop empathy. What would it be like to be you? Right. But a child before, like there's literally a time young where child does not have the literal neurological capacity to empathize. And so they come up with the most egotistical, meaning me, child at the center explanation. What does that look like? It, so- it might sound like this in a child's mind. He is me. I am not worth it. I don't have something to give. Now, is a child actually using that language? No. A child's not using that language, but makes the same meaning out of it. Doesn't have the same language. I'm using adult language to describe a child's mental process, okay? So a child, again, comes up with the most simplistic and most egotistical answer to why this is happening. Ego, I would say, I should say meaning rather than answer. So what is that? How does that sound? What, what, what might that look like in a child's mind if we apply adult language to it? He is me. I'm not worth it. I don't have something to give. Is this because of me? What does this say about me? But now as, an, as adults, we understand all of these factors, right? Like, but children don't. Why is that important with adult men? Because it's trauma. And your brain on trauma is very different <laughs> than your brain healthy. So... We've got child, again, whatever age, child develops this trauma. And that's so even worse when they're younger because there's not, there's even less ability to make any sense out of it. Child experiences this attachment trauma. Dad has become absent. Regardless of why that happened, the absence in itself is a trauma. The absence in itself is a trauma. What is a trauma? My definition for you is simple. A disruption to the norm. Trauma, disruption to the norm. So there was a structure, right? And even if dad was never, ever there, the norm is two parents, children, or child. So when there's one emotionally or physically absent, We have a trauma regardless of why that absence was taking place, okay? Keep it simple because this stuff is actually kind of simple when you start to put it all together like this, okay? So child has trauma. When that happens, your brain stores it like a strong, intense memory. Why? Not to punish you, to protect you, to save you. That's your brain's fun. Your brain's only function is to keep you alive, whoever you are. It's to keep you alive. And so when an experience is threat and trauma, it wants to know that if this thing happens again, what do I do? What's the problem with this is that it's a child, so they're unable to make sense out of it, but your brain's going to do the same thing. It's going to come up with this plan of what do I do, but you only have a child's resources. How crazy is that? So you got an adult-sized problem trying to be processed by a child's brain with very little resources and skills 
to reconcile those emotions. Y'all following me? This is good. This is going to make a lot of sense for somebody. All right. So uh, let's see. So we have child, we have child like processing this as a child does, puts, putting themselves at the middle. So let's go back to how this affects that self-esteem and confidence, right? So if I'm making this trauma and trying to understand why is dad gone? Why are we, why is, why are we experiencing, why am I experiencing this absence? And I'm making it about me because that's what children do. That's what children do. My confidence is now diminished. Here's, let's relate it back to the trauma thing, right? What trauma does is it sticks you in that age. So I experience this trauma at whatever age. And now my brain's survival function is directly related to the age, survival capacity is directly related to the age of the trauma. It's directly related to the age of the trauma. So you experience it at age six. Your brain gets locked in place. That part of the brain, it's the right side of the brain. It's responsible for emotional flashbacks, for example, sensory images, stuff like that, memory. The right side of the brain is now super activated because we're experiencing a threat. And it's going to lock in place, make that memory incredibly intense and significant so that you can avoid it. The problem is, is that when we don't resolve that and we become fearful of things that feel like that, like emotional intimacy or trust, now that feels threatening because the last time I saw it, it didn't work out. And I'm still in my child's mind with very limited resources to actually reconcile these things. Are y'all seeing how all of this stuff works together? This is your brain on trauma. Brain's not trying to punish you. It's trying to protect you. But I go, it goes unresolved into adulthood. And now that protection has become detrimental to your relationships. Because you're now you're responding to threats when there isn't one. Okay. Not done yet. Just taking a little bit of a breather. Hopefully things are going well on your side. They're going well on my side. (laughs) If you're finding that uh, you want to talk about these things, okay? If you're interested in doing one-on-ones or just have a general question about what you're hearing, you can use the free 20-minute call that's in the show notes below. You schedule a time and I'll reach out to you at that time. This is also the first passing of the offering bucket. Yep, first passing of the offering bucket coming to you in the form of Cash App. Mm-hmm. So if you're finding, um, if you're finding that you're getting something regularly out of this podcast, I love that for you. And I would ask that you show some appreciation. Yep. I have the audacity to ask for you to show some appreciation and pour something back into what you are getting something out of. Mm-hmm. And that may be in the form of a dollar or $2 or $5. And I'm not being facetious. I'm really serious. Just a dollar or two or five. 
to support the podcast, the work, and to show that you are getting something out of it and you are pouring back into it in some way. Once you do that, you can pass the offering bucket to the left. Thank you very much. All right. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the show. See you at the end. Thank you. Okay. Yep. I think I got everything on this page. Ah, <laughs> ah, last note, last note here. Okay, cool. I'm glad it's making sense. I like the hearts and I like the fire signs and the clap. I like it. All right. So this issue is exasperated. What time is it? Okay, cool. We're good with time. This issue is exasperated, can be exasperated when the problem or when this, when the, if they, if a, if a need was expressed or the problem was attempted to be confronted, this issue, this anxiety is exasperated when the problem is met with stress or anxiety or depression, for example, like with mom. So the child has now, and again, we're, we're, we're only talking about the anxious, anxious types right now. We're about to talk to, about the dismissive ones. But with my anxious type, you can ask yourself, why might this child feel anxious? After everything we just said, why might this child feel anxious? We got emotional flashbacks going on. We got trauma, unresolved trauma going on. We have um, a child's like a child's brain trying to deal with an adult problem. Of course, you're going to experience some anxiety. Of course. Of course. What other choice do you have but to be anxious at this point? Right. So and we're going to talk about how the dismissive types are also very anxious. And that's also that's always a, in, uh, an interesting conversation. But yeah. Um, so, so kids anxious turn into a, maybe now, you know, I don't, kid, teenager, whatever, under 18. <laughs> this issue can become exasperated when the problem is met with stress or anxiety or things like depression, for example, with mom. Okay. And why, why, why do I want that? Why do I, why am I making that note? Uh, let me think. Let me think how to say this. Oh, oh, reinforce. I was thinking how to say the, the simplest way, reinforcing the trauma response. In other words, this issue is scary. And when I make the brave attempt to express a need, which again, in a child with a child's mind, you're really not using the language like I'm feeling like they're having an emotional void because dad's not here. You're not usually saying that it might be an acting out. How about that? How about acting out, children acting out in school? Super common, right? When, when, when dad has, there's some absence. Uh, when, so that's, that's an example of a need being expressed as a child, right? Because they don't have the rationale, the logic to piece it all together. You're just, it's like when a baby is in a crib and they cry. And it, all that does is become a different expression as they get older. So now the child is not in a crib crying. Now they're in third grade throwing pencils on the floor, for example, right? That's an that's an example of an expression of a need. I'm missing something. Someone come and get me. And when that need is met with with more anxiety, depression, stress, rejection, minimizing, sound familiar in relation in romantic relationships? Yes. So when a child experiences that with someone close like a teacher and especially with mother, it exasperates, meaning it makes worse, it makes it bigger. In this case, the trauma response. Now it's reinforcing this idea that when I have a need, something bad's going to happen if I say something about it. Well, now I'm I'm super anxious because the the need doesn't go away. Now I just have to find 
weird ways to cope with it. Now I just have to find unhealthy ways to cope with it. Because when I try to express it, it didn't work out. As an adult, the way that that becomes problematic is that you actually do have some sort of language, right? It might not be as in-depth as like the way that I talk about these things, but you do have language, but then we still use childlike tantrums to get the need met. Ooh. Wow. So you're still the baby in a crib trying to express a need. Unable to use the language, not because you don't have it, but what? We're locked at age six. I'm locked at age two. I'm locked at age 12. Trauma brain, adult body, trauma child brain, adult body. So it's not that you don't have the language. It's that your brain neurologically, this is just what happens, reverts back to that time in the trauma when I needed to, when I wanted to express a need before, and I'm going to throw the tantrum. I'm now the baby in a crib. Language is out the window. I'm just acting out. I'm, this is, this is my throwing pencils on the floor. This is my cussing the teacher out. As an adult, what does that look like? You can guess, you, you know, you can infer. All right. Wow. This is good. So how does that affect relationships with women? Just talking still about the anxious preoccupied. Then we're going to talk about the dismissives. Avoidance. Wow, this is a lot. All right. How does this affect relationships with women? Here's a couple of common ones. Distrust of women. And yet, so distrust with women. So finding it difficult to enter into and sustain emotionally intimate relationships. I distrust. Okay. And here's the little caveat. Here's not a caveat. A little side note on that. Distrust and yet will have sex. Distrust and yet still could desire sex with women. Now, how crazy is that? Think about that. We got trauma brain. Dis- we, ha- we, might, we might now have developed a distrust of women. Okay, why? Because think about what that woman did to dad. That's mom, right? And you can love your mother and still ch- remember child reasoning. So I might take that anger that, and resentment I have towards mom because, I used, because when I was a kid, I felt like it might have something to do with her. Or now she or she she was treating me crazy or she parentified me. And now I have this this weird, unhealthy relationship with women. And I'm going to overgeneralize and project that onto the women that I'm with. I distrust you. And yet I still have a desire to have sex with you. Creates a pretty problematic dynamic, wouldn't you say? Yep. Yep. So, wow. What con- what incongruency? Even with, with that alone, I can have sex with you and I don't trust you. Very, very incongruent. Very, very problematic. All right, here's another uh, effect that you might have on your relationship with women. Strong need for emotional connection because the need doesn't go away. You're human just like everyone else. Strong need for emotional connection, but don't feel it's valid or appropriate. Like if you were rejected in the past and especially by someone like mom or teacher, mom or teacher, especially, but especially mom. It's especially problematic when it's mom. Okay. So, because that's your first attachment figure. None of us get away from that. Everybody, every, all seven and a half billion people on the planet have the same two attachment figures. It's mother and father. Even if you never knew one or either, everyone's got the same two. Their absence speaks to the attachment. Okay. That's kind of a little nutshell. All right. Um, so yeah, I'm strongly for emotional connection, but might not feel that it's valid or appropriate. So you try to hide it or you have that you develop this fearful, Approach, fearful avoidant. I said I was only going to talk about two types, but that's another one. Fearful avoidant where I know that I want it, but when it comes, I don't know what to do with it. 
I know that I want it, but when it's here, I reject it. Um, so strong need for connection, but don't feel it's valid or appropriate. I want it, but I feel nervous about it. I feel like it's, I feel like it's not okay. I was rejected before. It might happen again. I'm scared. Oh, here's another one. You may become over it. You may be over expecting in relationships. So at the beginning of this, I talked about romanticizing the father. Okay. But you might romanticize women. So, so think about how crazy this is. And by I'm using the word crazy very loosely in this case. Okay. Think about how interesting this is. How about that? You can have this distrust, resentment, confusion surrounding women and, and, or, cause you can do, you can, you can have both. You can have both of these things over expect from women, meaning I have an unreasonable expectation for what women's role is in my life. So I don't trust that you're going to do it. And I have an unre- I have an unreasonable idea that this should be happening in some fantasy world where a woman should be able to come in and take care of all of my emotional needs the way that I wish my mother would. How about that? The way I wish my mother would. This is what you hear a lot of women talking about. I don't want to be a therapist. But because honestly, like this is a genuine effect on relationships with women. Could be, right? Overexpecting. Thinking a woman should take care of all of your emotional needs or should just know how to take care of you. Romanticizing the mother or the woman. So when I say that you can have both, I'm really getting at this, I, this fact that the attachment exists on a spectrum. So you can literally sometimes over exaggerate the importance of women and sometimes totally undermine them and reject them. And that's an example. Again, that's why I only wanted to focus on two, but y'all know, I just be talking, I just get into this stuff and just want to tell you about things. So what I mean, like when attachment exists on a spectrum where we're not one thing, 100% of the time. So if you have this like overestimation of women and then you also undermine and reject them, that's more of like my fearful avoidant, dismissive, fearful avoidant, uh, anxious avoidant type where you're a little bit of both. Okay, you're inconsistent, moving goalposts. I'm gonna be saving the live game. Thank, thanks for listening. You like it? I'm glad. You, I'm glad you're. Pre, I'm glad you're liking it. That means I'm. That means I'm getting it right. Kevin said I'm getting it right. All right. Um. Uh, so you might. Yeah. Yep. 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 So uh, let me give you those three points again. How does it affect the relationship with women? Here. Here are the your big three: distrust, strong need. Could be distressed, could be strongly for emotional connection, but don't feel that it's valid or appropriate. So, right, that's insecure. That means that we're insecure about the need. So I might feel like I have to hide it away or pretend it doesn't exist. And then another third effect, uh, which could exist with distrust or without it, over expecting, okay, overestimating a woman's role um, and potentially overburdening her with that emotional load because you have a distortion to a woman's role in relationship. Go all the way back to the very beginning, right? I didn't see mom and dad play this thing out. So now you're just guessing like everybody else. With this, you're just guessing how is this thing supposed to go between a man and a woman? Didn't see it. I'm just, just giving, it a, giving it my best shot. So of course we have distortions and it's our job to bring the bring. Bring your your thoughts about how this thing's supposed to go to the forefront because you you should assume that if you come from a single parent household that you have distortions about male and female relationships. Just go ahead and assume it and then 
go talk to a therapist about it and say like, hey, this is how I think this thing is supposed to go. And then hopefully you get someone who's as honest as I am and will just say like, hey, like here's some of the distortions and here's what you can do about it. All right. Let me get a sip of water and then we are going to finish this up. Last leg of the race talking about the dismissive avoidant types. Interestingly, um, and not surprisingly, but it is interesting to me still that most men are uh, assumed to be dismissive avoidant. Assumed to be dismissive avoidant um, for plenty of reasons. Like, well, first, I guess I should define for you what dismissive avoidant, um, what some of the qualities are. Withdrawn, aloof, might say things like I'm better off alone or by myself. Don't identify with their emotional side. Can see feelings as being weak. Find difficult, have difficulty finding value in and therefore practicing emotional intimacy. If you don't value something, there's no incentive to do it. There's no incentive to do it. There's no incentive to do it to and sustain it. Okay, you might hit it for hit it for a quick little lick, but you, like you try it out for a, a, a you know try to impress a woman, but you can't sustain it if you don't value it. There's no internal incentive to hang on to that behavior. Woo! Wow, this is just really great um <laughs> all right so here's a note about my dismissive avoidance okay so you can probably also back to that first point that i started to say most men are assumed to be dismissive avoidant types um think about the way that men are portrayed and the way that men are pressured into being like to show as showing up in this way and i'm going to address that after i um go through this little bit too i will address that part briefly my dismissive avoidance uh also have high anxiety, but a very different expression than my anxious preoccupied. Anxious preoccupied people, you're wearing your anxiety on your sleeve, okay? That's why most women are assumed to be, if you're going to be one, they're assumed to be anxious preoccupied, partially because of what I just said about socialization, where women are more allowed to be expressive, like allowed meaning like it's socially facilitated more so than men um especially in the united states right so but my dismissive avoidance also have high anxiety so here's something i really want you to understand about about insecure types my anxious preoccupied people and my dismissive avoidant people have the same problem it's a distortion to the relationship of emotions it's a distortion to the relation it's a distortion of the relationship to emotions a distortion of the relationship to emotions meaning you're not handling it well both anxious, preoccupied and dismissive avoidance, or if you're a mixture of the both, of both, right? My anxious avoidance, my fearful avoidance, which is kind of like an anxiety, my anxious, my anxious avoidance types is similar. They're just really similar. Um, so my dismissives also have high anxiety, but you learn a different way to, to cope with it. You put wall up and don't allow for the expression, don't allow for the identification, where my extreme anxious or codependent types are overly indulged in the emotions. And sometimes, and some, some of my people might be a little bit of both, right? And you may show up differently with different people, different type, different relationships. I don't know how many times I could say that. I just think that's important. So you still have high anxiety. You just learn a different expression, um, ultimately my dismissive avoidance have a displeasure with their emotions. So both have a distortion, but my, my dismissive avoidance are specifically perturbed or I say, especially not specifically, especially perturbed by the presence of emotions and especially negative ones, especially negative ones. They would rather not. Okay. 
Uh, these people might be might appear to be serial daters and non-committal. And I said non-committal even in relationships, meaning that you do not commit your heart commit your emotions, your investment to the relationship. Okay. So you're, you may be able to, plenty of dismissive avoidance are in relationships. I have dated the dismissive avoidance. Okay. So plenty of them can be in relationships, but are you committed and invested within the relationship? And my dismissive avoidance, usually it's that feeling and and the, the person that's with them can typically feel it, right. That they have one foot out or they're kind of turning their head or they have, they have a lot of skepticism or they're unable to express their commitment or unwilling to express their commitment. It makes them, it might make them uncomfortable. Deep talks or talking about the future. That's an example of dismissive avoidance in relation even while in relationships. So I still call you non-committal. All right. Wow. And how does it affect your relationships with women? Well, it's not gonna go well. <laughs> so essentially, um, you're unable to develop trust and vulnerability because you're unable to express it. So there's no real relationship. There's no actual depth in the relationship with these types. All right. So let me just wrap it with this. Um, and then I'll tell you what you can do about it. Okay. Some things that you can do about it. So uh, I want to say this men have an interesting combination of factors. Um, they may internally feel weak and incompetent, but externally, and this is back to that socialization piece, externally can face the pressure of looking strong and capable. This is especially especially problematic in the black community, especially, okay? But I do argue that the majority of men identify with that pressure of wanting, needing to look strong and capable, but being set up but not being set up for success, right? Because if I have a distortion to the relationship of my, it's distortion of the relationship to my feelings, then I am only acting as strong and capable because I have this huge part of my humanity dismissed and neglected. So this creates a further disconnect within themselves. On top of that, They may have tried to express themselves to a mother, for example, who did not have the capacity or desire to make room for this part, either because she didn't understand the importance or more maliciously intended to withhold that because of her own issues. Try not to diagnose your mother, okay? And I do not recognize trying to confront her after hearing this, okay? And without therapy and without literally going over, if you plan to confront, it's just, this is just my, per, this is my warning to you. If you're coming upon these issues, a lot of people feel like I feel I have a compulsion to go talk to my mom and tell her that I felt an emotional void and I need to go talk to my dad and I need to tell him I needed an impress. And I do not recommend doing that without having like come put it like this. I would love for you to be in the energy of reconciliation not that conflict is bad because it's not, but we, when we do conflict and we, when we confront these traumatic things from an energy of reconciliation, I can still have all of my righteous anger, okay? Because rightfully so, you deserve something different. Children literally have entitlements of the physical and emotional protection of their parents. And when you don't get it, that anger is righteous. Anger is not a bad feeling. It is usually the feeling that tells us when our boundaries have been intruded upon and when we're not getting something that we need. So anger is a perfectly fine feeling, but when we do that without the energy of reconciliation and, and haven't lit, actually literally processed through some of these things, when you confront it from that place, 
Ooh, that's why I say, please don't do it. It might not go well. So hang tight. <laughs> okay, hang tight. You want to avoid further deepening the wound. And a lot of times when someone comes up comes up on this stuff and starts working with it, they're like, I don't care. I want somebody to know how I feel. I, I deserve this. It's been 38 years and I'm ready to, I get it. I do. I do. But think about your future self, okay? So come out of the present moment and all the feelings and everything. Yes, process it in therapy, but go to your future self. And your future self probably wouldn't like you deepening the wound when you know that there could have been a better way. So I'm just asking you to be conscious. Okay, I'm asking you to be conscious. All right, well, let me just tell you a couple quick notes of what you can do about it, aside from like obviously going to therapy. Um, I want you to... I want you to put this kind of in the for. I'm gonna put you put this in the forefront. Okay, consistent therapy. I'm gonna give you four consistent therapy. When you go in, stay in there. Okay. Yes, you should at some point feel like you can start to separate from therapy. But if you, if I mean, this takes this takes some time. Okay, this takes some time. Okay, so you got to be in there consistently. Don't be skipping weeks. Okay, this needs consistent and persistent touching at the brain. You need to consistently take the battle against these subconscious things that are getting in your way of developing healthy, sustainable relationships with yourself and with others, whatever kind of relationships they are, right? You've got to consistently, persistently like get at this thing. So get in and stay in there week to week. Um, Other thing, back in touch with your emotions, validating that for yourself first, that it is important. They are real. You do have them. Okay. You got, you have emotions and feelings and they are okay. So getting back in touch with your emotions, obviously the process of that is different than me just saying that, but that should be something that should be on your goal list, not just understanding what happened, but really practically and experientially doing this work, right? Processing through this, getting back in touch with your emotions, that should be on your goal list. Um, Not dismissing your emotions or trying to make them go away. That's not how this works, okay? Um, Third thing. Understanding, I touched on this, you have a valid void, a valid void. Again, children have legitimate entitlements. And I get, I get, I get, I get kind of cringy when someone kind of, especially adult, adults, and I guess it's only adults and adult men. It's like, no one, I, no one, the world doesn't owe you anything. And I say, uh, 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 who, I always want to be specific because children, children are definitely owed something. Just just because they exist, because they were brought into this place. Now look at us. We're all here together, right? Like you literally were, you were deserving of things just because you came into existence. The thing is that a lot of people didn't get it. Okay. And if you're in the single parent group, a lot of people didn't get it. So you have a valid void, okay, a valid void and understanding that you were literally deserving and truly entitled. And I know that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a touchy word, but, but come to accept that, that as a child, I needed these things and I didn't get them. And I need to confront that reality rather than acting like it doesn't exist. Because even when you pretend it doesn't exist, the thing is with reality and truth, it still exists. So you got to do something about it. And the last thing. Ooh, ooh, a desire to see your faults in relationship, desire to see your own faults in relationships and your own behaviors, thought patterns and thought patterns, okay, that perpetuate this issue so that you can stop blaming, for example, like women, 
Okay, stop. Even though look, I know women, women, they go off. I get it. But this is not about them right now. We're just talking about men. Okay, so a desire to see your own faults in the relationship so that you can see that you do have control over what happens next and you can change these patterns. You absolutely a thousand percent can do it, but you've got to be able to see your own faults and your own decisions so that you can do something about it. All right, y'all. Well, that's the episode. I think this was really, really good. Thanks for listening. Uh, See y'all later. Wasn't that good? I hope that you enjoyed the episode and got something out of it. If you did and you think that something else might, someone else might get something out of it as well, please share it. If you have a moment to rate it, I would really appreciate it. Just click those stars if you're an Apple. If you have 30 seconds to a minute, you could review it, write a sentence or two. And if you're feeling especially supportive and appreciative of the podcast and you've been getting something out of it for a while and you have not supported by giving $2 or a dollar or $5 in the cash app, then today might be your day. I always encourage myself and others to give where we are getting. And that cash app is dollar sign Taychan. It is also written below. If you want to talk more about that or anything else, you can use that free 20 minute call. You can schedule a time and we will get on the phone and get you to where you need to go. All right, y'all. Well, I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.